Um, hey, good to see everybody this morning. Let me get all my stuff here so I can have it. A um, couple of housekeeping things. She just walked out. I wish I would have said it faster, but today is Kayla's birthday. So when you see her, make sure to tell her you love her and we're grateful for her. And she'll be mad that we even said it was her birthday because um, she likes to keep that low profile. Um, second, every week there are things that are happening in the building. I just kind of want to update you some weeks about what all God is doing and what our team is doing. Uh, one, last week, I don't even know if you noticed it. You might not have even noticed it, but there was a hole right here. And today, there's not a hole right here. So I feel like my radius that I can move around in got bigger uh, because there's no hole here anymore. At, at one point last week, Nick took a step back, and a couple of us who were in here like held our breath. Is he going to fall into the hole? And he didn't. Uh, there's been other things that are going on this week. If you notice, there was a different guy playing guitar this morning. His name is Chris. He came a 1,000 miles to play the guitar this Sunday. So... Uh, He's actually, I do want to tell you who he is, because some of you would be like, why, who is that guy? Uh, I enjoyed you playing guitar. Chris is also, when he's not playing guitar, uh, an electrician and a building inspector. And he, so he came up this week to spend this weekend, he gave up his weekend to come and inspect the building and just get all up into the guts of this 170-year-old building and tell us what he found and saw so that we can know how to proceed with the things that God has called us to do. So thank you so much for all that you've done. And another thing that's kind of going on, and, and really we're kind of thinking about this in terms of getting ready for Palm Sunday. Um, which is in two weeks, which is the moment where we really want to say to the community and to our friends, hey, we want you to come on Palm Sunday, April 10th. And so we're trying to get things done. Every week you'll notice a couple of little things get adjusted and fixed and added and all of that. Um, in, the, in the midst of doing that, we're painting. I believe this week we're going to resume painting the meeting hall downstairs and then what we're calling the youth room, which will be the youth room, like the room right off of there. So if you love to paint, which I don't, but if you love to paint and want to give a couple of hours over the next week or so, if you'll let see me or Nick today before you leave, we'd love to do that. And along those lines, today we're actually going to be, we're going to have about 90 minutes, and this is the other big thing we've been planning for this week. Actually, it's going to be about 75 minutes where we're going to train volunteers. It's a big building. And in the last couple of weeks, some of you have been like, man, this is a big building. How are we going to greet people? And how are we going to do all this stuff? We're going to do it together. And so this morning, it was awesome having Thompson out there greeting people as they came in. Uh, a couple of people got here before we unlocked the door. So we learned we need to unlock the doors a couple of minutes earlier than we presently do. So we're learning that stuff. And thank you all for being gracious. If you want to be, if you want to help with Christ Kids, there's two classes over here on Sundays for Christ kids, adventurers, which are the elementary agers, and discoverers, which are the little ones. Or if you would like to come and volunteer on first impressions, that's people who are greeting and also people who are preparing coffee and all of that just to make sure that everybody knows where to go in the building. That would be great. Or if you want to be on worship and tech. Uh, we're doing a training for all of them today. Immediately after church, we're going to speak to one another for about five minutes, and then we're going to bring in tables and chairs, and we'll train and have lunch in here. So if you want to stay for that, that would be awesome. If you've got a Bible, turn to Proverbs 27. 
Uh, we're going to read one verse today. Um, if you're looking for a paper Bible because you're old school and you like paper Bibles, first of all, as your pastor, let me affirm that. I love paper Bibles. I think that's the way to go. And there's actually a paper Bible under the seat in front of you. It's the same translation I use in here. If you say, I don't have a paper Bible, feel free to steal. It's not stealing. I'm giving you permission. Feel free to take one of the Bibles with you. I would love that. Uh, if you don't know where the book of Proverbs is, if you open the Bible right to the middle, that's the book of Psalms usually is right in the middle of the Bible. And the next book over going toward the back is the book of Proverbs. We're going to be in Proverbs 27, 17 today. We're just going to look at one verse. We're in the middle of a series, by the way, called Canoeing the Mountains. It's based on this book that's written to pastors by a guy named Todd Bolsinger. It's talking about leadership in uncharted ter territory. It's mostly, like I said, written to pastors, but it was so good that I wanted to walk us through it as a church and talk about when we kind of go off the map, um, when we're in uncharted waters or uncharted lands, how do we know how to, how to love and live and lead other people that God's entrusted to us? And so, and it's based on um, Lewis and Clark, who were tasked with, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you've heard this, they were tasked by President uh, Thomas Jefferson with finding a passage of, after the Louisiana Purchase, from Missouri to the Pacific Ocean, um, and they thought that because they were expert river navigators, they were told that there would be a river or a series of rivers that would take them from Missouri to the Pacific Ocean. And they got to the Rocky Mountains, and the mountains were much rockier than they thought they were, and their canoes were certainly not going to go up over the Rocky Mountains. They had to go from the Missouri River to find the Colorado River to get to the Pacific Ocean. They didn't know that. And so the idea is that you can't canoe the mountains. There comes a moment where what we've known and the maps that we've had, will they, don't they don't lead us anymore. And as a church, like I was talking with Thompson this morning outside, we are now as a church in uncharted waters. I didn't know that we would get to this spot this way, but, but God did. God did. And we need to learn to live and love and lead well when he leads us into places where we don't know. So Lewis and Clark, by the way, they were chosen by Thomas Jefferson. Meriwether Lewis was the leader of the group. I, I remember growing up in elementary school hearing about Lewis and Clark. I thought they were best buddies and they were equal. They actually were really close friends, but were not equals at all. Uh, Meriwether Lewis was chosen by Jefferson. He was the leader of the expedition, but William Clark was chosen by Lewis. And they were friends. Actually, Clark outranked Lewis uh, on the expedition, technically, but they co-led. Meriwether Lewis was comfortable enough with Clark to say, I want you to co-lead this expedition with me. And Clark was comfortable enough with himself and Lewis's leadership, but he didn't try to run out past him and usurp his leadership. They led as peers. Now, their entourage, their traveling group, was 45 people, and it was a mostly loyal crew. There was one guy by the name of Moses Bond, who is a deserter, and they, like, he tried to leave them, and then they went and tracked him down and said, you're not leaving us. You don't get to go off the range here, buddy. And they brought him back, and they basically had to lock him down because he began to cause such trouble with a lot of other guys, in particular one guy named John Newton. He scared John Newton to death by all the stuff he would talk about the expedition, and they were all going to die and all of that. And so they had to isolate Moses Bond. There was one now-famous guide, uh, Sacagawea, 
was their guide, if we've ever heard of her and didn't know kind of how we know about her other than Night at the Museum. Uh, she came of fame because she led the guys through uncharted territory in the far west, and she even brought her infant baby with her on the trip, and so her infant son was there. And going from Missouri to the Pacific Northwest in 1804 and 1805, they only had one person die. And the guy didn't die because of the trip. He actually died because of appendicitis. His name was Charles Floyd, and we'll talk about him in a moment. So where you're going, this is important, where you're going and where you end up hinge on who you're going with and for the leader who you're taking with you. Where you're going in your relationships, in your leadership, in your family, hinge on who's going with you. It's the whole idea of bad company corrupts good morals like, our traveling party matters. It actually matters who we travel with. You know, Jesus took 12 simple, untrained, very different men. Like, I think of the disciples, and I think of, like, carpenters and fishermen. And they were some fishermen, but these guys were really different beyond that. There was a tax collector, and then there was a guy named Simon who was a zealot. And what zealot means is one who kills tax collectors. It's basically a guerrilla warfare terrorist. And so Jesus and his entourage has got uh, a tax collector and a guy who kills tax collectors, you know, in his spare time. And, like, can't you just see them at the Last Supper, like, looking at each other, like, what's going on here? And then there's, you know, some who are older and married. Peter was married. There's some who are younger, so young that they live 60 years after uh, Jesus is crucified and resurrected. So there's the teenagers, and then there's the older pe people who are established in life. I mean, he's got this different crew, and those, um, they're very different but because they were with them, with him, they changed the world. See, it sometimes like where we're going matters, but who we're going with matters as much as actually where we're going. And uh, that's a that's helpful to remember as we move into as we canoe the mountains in uncharted waters. Now, let me just deal with one quick thing. Some of you might say, "But I'm not a leader." Like, I have an almost 13-year-old son who's sitting in here today and does such a great job playing the drums on Sunday, and there's other teenagers in here, and they might say, well, I'm not a leader. But I would say to my son, you're a leader of your younger brother. You play soccer. You can be a leader there. There are places where we all lead. It may be at home. It may be in the workplace. It may be on the athletic field or with our civic groups. There's places where we can all choose to lead as we follow and trust Jesus. And so the question is, who is with us as we lead? Now, grab your Bible. We're going to read one verse. Every week, Nick has been like, one verse? Yes, one verse. Here it is. Iron sharpens iron, and one person sharpens another. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. This one, by the way, is so short and so important that I would encourage you to underline it and maybe even memorize it. I memorized this when I was uh, about 16 years old, and I've never forgotten it. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. It makes me think about these old, like old kitchen knives. How many of you have like an old kitchen knife set? Anybody got one? Some of us even have old kitchen knives that have outlived their usefulness, right? And like no longer is the knife doing the work, like just sweat equity is doing the work. Like, I mean, it's like, arr, arr. Uh, Natalie loves to bake bread in our home. And a lot of weeks we'll have bread for the week that she's baked and I'm you know, we'll have some knives. We've got some knives we've had longer than others, and I can tell when it is because I'll go to 
get into that bread, and it can barely even get through the crust. I'm like, well, this one's not going to work. Let me get the red-handled one, and I'll start plowing through it. Like, iron sharpens iron. is coming to the idea of, like, old kitchen knives become dull, and they become worthless. And we can either do one of two things. We can throw them out, or we can sharpen them. But an old knife is never going to sharpen itself. My kitchen knives, our kitchen knives, are never going to sharpen themselves. I remember going to one of those, um, like, do you remember the Ginsu knives, the the um, like the commercial on television that would be like, you can cut up an aluminum can with this. You can cut a da 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 da. Listen, even a Ginsu would have to be resharpened. Like you can't be cutting stuff that goats eat, like cans and rubber tires, and not think it's going to wear down the blade. And the idea here, iron sharpens iron, is we cannot sharpen ourselves. We have to be sharpened by someone or something else. And to do that requires proximity and heat, and friction, and cooperation. The iron has to work with the iron against one another. There has to be proximity to sharpen the blade. And the same is true for you and I when it comes to accountability and who's traveling with us. Iron sharpens iron. If we're going to be sharpened, there has to be proximity. I'll tell you one thing that has made this passage tough for us as Christians is the last two years where we haven't been together. Have there been discipleship habits and following Christ that have been tougher because there hasn't been someone in your life to be like, how are you doing? How's it going with that? You struggling with that? How are you? Iron sharpening iron requires proximity. We have to be known. We have to interact with one another. Lone rangers get picked off first. The Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation. Iron sharpens iron. There has to be proximity. There's going to be heat and friction. If Miles and I are meeting and we're talking about following Jesus and Miles spots something in me that's not Christ-like and Miles says, hey, J.D., I know it's kind of awkward, but I notice like Natalie's kind of feeling neglected or I notice that the Bible doesn't really seem to be a priority for you right now or I notice that I saw you vandalizing that home down the street like... When he asks me about that, it's going to be awkward. There's going to be heat. There's going to be friction. It's awkward. But if there's not heat and friction and tension, there is no sharpening. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And listen, I'll tell you, I've only ever heard this verse shared positively. How many of you have heard this verse before? Yeah, several of us. I've only ever heard this verse shared in a sense of, okay, then I do need Miles in my life. Oh, okay, then Nikki does need Nicole in her life. Oh, then Rochelle does need Natalie in her life. We need one another so that we can become more like Christ. But we don't get a sense from the verse that we're talking about good iron and good iron. I've never thought about this till this week. I've only ever heard this as one good Christian becomes sharp as it does life with another good Christian. Iron sharpens iron. Good iron meets with other good iron, and they sharpen one another. One person sharpens another, but it doesn't tell us that. It's generally true. Accountability and mentoring and being discipled, but it's not always that. Some of us are going to have people in our life who sharpen us but are not good people. How many of you have somebody in your life who God has allowed them to sharpen you, but you're like, who that person? Okay, a hand went up really fast. Uh, Like, we have people like that who it's like, Lord, I wish you would just take this person out of my life for now. But I'm going to trust you. And if you'll 
and if I will allow you to let them sharpen me, even though this is a difficult person. I want to tell you today, there are seven types of people who are around a leader, seven types of people who are around you, traveling with you uh, as you canoe the mountains. Here they are. Number one, the first type of person with you is probably the one that we think of the most when we think of iron sharpening iron. It's your allies. The first type of person traveling with you, hopefully, is your allies. With Lewis and Clark, I believe that they had about 42 allies on the journey when they left. Allies are the people who are convinced of the mission and are committed to fulfilling it. We're starting a church in this neighborhood. We've been doing this for almost five years now. It requires allies who are committed to the mission of saying, oh, we want to bring Charlestown together around the gospel. We want there to be a Bible-teaching, community-loving church in this neighborhood, and we are allies in that together. The people sitting here today are the allies, most of them, in the mission. If they're going to be here, for the most part, we're committed to the mission. Allies may be your friends. As a leader, however, allies may not be your friends. They may just be committed to the mission. Some of you have people that you work with, that you're doing, you're working with, that are your allies at work, but they're not your friends, and they don't have to be. You're just committed to making your business or your place of work a better place. Those are allies committed to the mission on the journey. They can see the destination. They're working with you to it, and they're fighting with you for success. By the way, allies can come in three locations of proximity to you. You're going to have some allies, you and I, who are above us. We're going to have some allies who are peers, and we're going to have some allies who are beneath us. But they're going to be on the mission with us in the middle of the journey. So an ally above you may be a boss who cheers for you and wants to see you succeed. Have any of you ever had a boss who just loved you and wanted you to thrive? Yeah. I remember when I walked into my pastor's office I'd worked for a church for about six years, and I walked into his office. He was my ally, though he was my authority. And I said, I believe God has told me it's time for me to leave this church and start a church. And he looked at me, and I was so nervous. And he looked at me, and he said, I love you. I'm really proud of you. What do you need to accomplish the mission that God is calling you to? That's an ally. We all need allies who are above us. We need allies who are beside us. Lewis and Clark were allies. Yes, they were friends, but they were also allies. The mission was we're going to find the Pacific Ocean. We're going to find the Pacific Ocean. And they were allies together in that shared mission. And then there were allies beneath them. There were 42. Of course, there was that Moses Bond guy who they literally had to kind of lock up and carry with them like dead weight. But most of the people were committed. We're going to go from Missouri to the Pacific Ocean together. We want to fulfill the mission and fight with you, Lewis and Clark, for success. Some people will be above you, some beside you, some will be beneath you. Listen, in the Bible, Mordecai had Esther. He was her uncle but they were allies in the mission to save the Jewish people. Uh, Paul had Barnabas. Moses had Joshua. In church, there are those who are going to, the people on the mission, the allies, are those who show up and who serve and who give and who invite. And it's more than words, and it's never assumed. But the question, whether it's at church or work or home, is how do we identify the allies? 
How do we find out who is on the mission with us? How do we identify the allies and who are your allies and who considers you an ally? There are people looking to you saying, I consider you that if everybody else in this business bails, we're going to fight for the mission here. There are people who are going to be that person for you. They're going to be your allies. The second type of person with us, uh, iron sharpening iron. All of these are an opportunity to sharpen us. These are, I'm going to give you three good ones. The second type is the confidant. Your confidants. Now, an ally is with you on the mission, but they may or may not be your friend. A confidant is less interested in the mission and more interested in you. A confidant is convinced of you and is invested in you more than in the mission, often outside the mission or the organization. It's your go-to. It's your coach or your soul friend. How many of you have a confidant who you can go to and share anything about, whether it's work or your marriage or raising? Like, how many of you have that person? That's amazing. Iron sharpens iron. That's part of how God sharpens us, is those people. They don't care. I've got a guy named Dino Sinesi. It's a great Italian name. Dino is about 20 years older than me. He'll call me about every three months, and he'll say, hey, let's have a 90-minute coaching session. I just want to coach you. He wants Christ Church Charlestown to succeed. He prays for our neighborhood, but he lives in South Carolina. He loves me. He wants to see me succeed as a follower of Jesus and as a husband and as a dad and as a pastor. We need those confidants to cheer for us regardless of whether the mission makes it or not. I want to tell you, for those who are married, you need confidants in your marriage. Those who are deeply involved in a relationship, you're going to need confidants. But if you're married, I want to tell you, A, your confidant cannot be your spouse. It should, your spouse should be a confidant, but it won't be your main confidant. Because sometimes, guess what? You're going to need to vent about your spouse. Never. Never need to vent about your spouse. Sometimes Natalie and I need to vent about one another then. And we each have one confidant. And we each know who it is. My confidant in my marriage is my brother. Her confidant, she actually gets two because I'm a handful. Her confidants in our marriage are her friend Gina and her sister Nicole. We know who one another's confidants are. We have a rule in our marriage that we never vent about our marriage problems to our parents. Our parents are not allowed to be our confidants. It's not fair because our parents are more invested in us even than the mission of our marriage. And so we need to be really careful with that. I would say if you're married or you're going to be married, you need to have a confidant. It needs to not be your spouse. It needs to be the one go-to or two go-tos that you will go and share your marriage problems with. It needs to be no one else. You're not ever going to hear me complain about my wife. If I need to complain about her, I will call my brother Jason and say, dude, I got to unload today. It's only happened a couple times in 18 years of marriage. But Natalie never has to walk into church and wonder, I wonder if he's talked about me with these people. She never has to sit down at the Thanksgiving table and wonder, I wonder if my mother-in-law is mad at me. Because I need a confidant and she needs a confidant, but it needs to be chosen strategically. The third type of person who will be with you on the journey, iron sharpening iron, are authorities. Authorities. We all have them. When I say authorities, how many of you can think of people in your life who are authorities over you? A few of us, yeah. Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, President Jefferson, was Lewis and Clark's authority. Um, 
an authority can be in the mission or an authority can be outside of the mission, but an authority is definitely over the mission. It makes me think about a Michael Scott quote. Uh, I don't know how many of you like The Office. In our house, we love The Office. Michael Scott says, do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked. I enjoy being liked. I have to be liked. But it's not like this compulsive need, like my need to be praised. Like an authority is less interested in being liked and more interested in leading, in accomplishing something, in moving somewhere. When someone has to be praised, they've got another issue and they've ceased to be an authority. And so this is true at work. It's true in parenting. You can't always be a friend and a parent at the same time. I love Noah. I love Owen. I want them to like me. But at the end of the day, I want them to become godly young men who are good members of society. And so sometimes I've got to put my friend hat aside and put the dad hat on. Right? And this is how life works. There's sometimes if you're in authority that you're going to have to say, look, I want to be your friend, but I'm going to put that aside and I've just got to be your boss. Or there's sometimes if you have a good boss where your boss says, I love you. I actually even like you. But I've got to put that aside right now, and I've got to tell you, we've got to get this job done a little bit better. We're going to have authorities. And even husbands, let me say for those who are married, God has entrusted us to be the authority in our home. Now, in my house, we make our decisions 50-50. Actually, my wife has given up so much in life and in marriage and in ministry that I usually give her a 51% vote on most things. She doesn't wield it, but I want her to have it. But 100% of the responsibility before the Lord falls on me. And I take that really seriously. So I want to lead my family well. The Lord will hold me accountable to that. I am the authority. How I lead my home doesn't look authoritative, but God has given the authority to me. It's not my job to be everybody's friend in Casa de Mangrum, 300 Medford Street, number three. It's my job to steward the responsibilities that the Lord has given me. And if God has made you an authority at home, particularly husbands, you need to steward that authority well. The fourth type of person on the journey with us, uh, because the first three were allies, confidants, and authorities. Those are mostly good. These next four are not always so good, but they will sharpen you if you let them. Number, number four would be opponents. Nehemiah had Sanballat and Tobiah. Paul had Hymenaeus and Alexander. Jesus had Pharisees and Sadducees. We call these in my home EGRs, extra grace required. Anybody got an EGR in your life? This person's going to require a little bit of extra grace. That's an opponent. They're stakeholders, but they have a different perspective, and they risk losing if the mission succeeds. They may not be your enemies. You may have opponents who actually aren't your enemies. They just may have a different outcome if the mission succeeds. And so with these people, you want to, this is that, that old adage of keep your friends close and it says your enemies closer, I would say keep your friends close and your opponents closer. Know what your opponent stands to lose if things succeed. Listen, I'm here to tell you. Watch what I'm about to tell you. We should almost maybe even write this down, set an alarm for five years from now. If the church succeeds in this neighborhood, there are a lot of things that begin to lose. I can tell you right now, drug addiction is opposed to the church winning in this neighborhood. Broken homes and broken marriages are opposed to the gospel winning in this neighborhood. 
everyone having a fair shake, regardless of how you grew up or where you grew up or how much money your family had or what type of... All, that, has a, that has a stake in this neighborhood. And those things stand in opposition to the gospel because as Jesus begins to win, addiction and brokenness begin to lose and they push back and they fight. And we need to be aware that they're there. We need to know who our opponents are and understand what's at stake from their perspective. The fifth type is dissenters. Dissenters aren't necessarily opponents. Dissenters are the ones who just see things from a different perspective, and they're not afraid to speak about it. In, 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 um, in Send Boston, our network, I have a nickname. They call me the contrarian. What that means is if 10 people say, we need to go this way, I am the one that's great with sitting in the room and saying, why are we going that way? Where's that going to take us? I don't think that's the best way to go. It's not that I'm opponent, opposed to it. I'm definitely not an enemy, but I don't mind being the dissenter because I want to make sure we arrive at the right place. You're going to have dissenters in your life. Some of them are not going to like you. Some of them are going to love you deeply, but they're going to speak about what they see. And you, I would encourage you, for your dissenters who are making you sharper, see their motive Seek their perspective where possible and keep advancing on the mission. And ask yourself, how might the dissenter's dissent advance our mission? Nick will bring stuff up all the time. I don't, I don't know if he's even in here. Nick will bring stuff up all the time, and I'm like, we're not going to do that. And I bring stuff up all the time, and Nick will go, well, why are we doing that? Is it because Nick hates me? No. Is it because I want to see Nick get it wrong and I want to be right? No. It's because we want to get the right balance on where God is taking us. The dissenters in your life, check their motives as best you can. If their motives are good, welcome what they're saying and see how you can grow from as God is leading you. The sixth one, and this is where they start to get sad, is casualties. This is the next type of person that may sharpen you as casualties. You can't go into uncharted territory without risk. Charles Floyd lost his life on the expedition with Lewis and Clark. It's hopefully not going to be literal death when you're advancing a mission, but there will be some people who experience the death of their journeying with you and continuing the mission. The leader assumes the responsibility for the casualties. Look, there's going to be some people who are going to say in the next year, I liked Christ Church Charlestown better when it was 30 people. I don't think I can do this anymore unless you, unless you guys commit to keeping it small. And I'm going to say, no, 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 we're here so that 18,000 people have one chance to say yes or no to Jesus. That's the mission. And the mission has to advance. And I want you to stay and be on board with it. But if you won't, we still have to share the gospel with everyone. And that's going to make us uncomfortable. There are going to be times in, at your workplace where you're going to say, our company's going here, and this is a healthy destination. And someone say, well, I'm going to have to go get another job if you can't pivot on that. And if you're the leader, part of leadership is saying, well, let me help you find another job. I want you to thrive. But the destination cannot be shifted because you're uncomfortable with it. I had a friend named Stuart Fuller, who's a pastor of Radius Greenville uh, Church in downtown Greenville, and I was meeting with him one morning, one Monday morning for coffee, and I said, Stuart, how's it going? How was your weekend at church? He goes, it was awesome. It was awesome. And I was like, what has happened at Radius? And I said, dude, that's amazing. What happened? 
And he said, I grew our church last night from 300 down to 200. I said, excuse me? He goes, I grew our church last night from 300 down to 200. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, there are some people who want our church to have all these kids' ministries and all these other ministries. And I told him if they wanted that, they needed to go to Fellowship Greenville. And then there are people who want to do this. And I told him if they want that, they need to go to this church. And, if, and then there are people who wanted this other thing. And I told him if they wanted that, a big church building, then they needed to go to this church. He said, and I think I grew our church from 300 down to 200. But with that 200, now we're really clear about what God has called us to do and not what he's called everybody else to do. And so I'm okay with losing them. I sent them to good churches. I was like, dang, that's a baller move. I don't know that I have the courage to do that. He was comfortable with the casualties because the mission had to advance. And the seventh one is saboteurs. Saboteurs, which I had to check the spelling on this week, and I think we put it on a slide. In leadership, these are the people who love the status quo, or they love their mission or their vision of victory more than they love the stated mission and vision. When you have a spouse who cheats in a marriage, what you have is a saboteur, typically. Someone sabotaging the marriage because they have their own agenda rather than the stated agenda of in sickness and in health, better or worse, richer or poorer, till death do us part. That's a saboteur. If you have a kid who goes off the range in your home and they say, I'm going to metaphorically burn the thing down. I'm going to get in as much trouble as possible. You've got a saboteur and you have to deal with them. This is like uh, Moses Bond. You've got to deal with the saboteur. If they love their status quo or they love their mission and vision and vict- uh, of victory more than the mission that God's given you, you may have them at home, at work, on your team. When you see them, stay calm, act, don't act alone. You may not sway them, but you can sharpen them. You may not sway your, the saboteurs, but you can sharpen them. I think that's important. Let me just share four little quick principles with you about all seven of these people because as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Good iron and bad iron. I think we have these up here, but you won't be able to write them down. So if you will, just listen. Good iron and bad iron are both part of life and leadership. You're going to have opponents, dissenters, saboteurs, and casualties, just like you're going to have allies, confidants, and authorities. That's just part of life. You're going to have it. It's part of life. Good iron and bad iron will have them both. All have a positive influence if you let them. All can have a negative influence if you let them. And in different settings, I want to tell you, we can be a positive one or a negative one. I've seen deacons in churches who are really good dads and really good employees, but they would have overbearing bosses at work who were bullies. And so this really meek deacon in a church who would be bullied Monday through Friday would then walk into the church and be a bully to the pastor. And it was because he was being bullied all week. So here he was good iron and here he was bad iron. We need to understand that we can reflect either one and all of them can sharpen us. Second thing we need to understand, good iron and bad iron will both sharpen us if we let them. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about having a thorn in the flesh that could have been a person. And he said, God, will you take this thing out of my life three times? And if you may know what God said. God said, I'm not doing it. My grace is enough for you because in your weakness, there I'm the strongest. Good iron and bad iron will both sharpen us if we let them. Bad iron, EGRs, extra grace required people can be God's sandpaper 
to produce patience and peace and humility and God dependence in you. Number three, you can sharpen and deeply influence both good iron and bad iron. And that's leadership. And that's witness. It's saying, oh, this person's a, a saboteur today. Oh, this person is an opponent or, opponent or a dissenter. I'm still going to sharpen them. I'm still going to let God work through me to love them and serve them and show them that Jesus lays down his life for others. Visionary leadership requires that we sharpen both good iron and bad iron. And number four, and finally, Christ died for what we would call good iron and bad iron. Listen, in Jesus' eyes, every one of us is bad iron. Every one of us. In Jesus' eyes, when we look at Jesus and his moral perfection, then guess what? I'm not morally perfect. So compared to Jesus, we're all bad iron. And yet he loves us and he lays down in his life to transform us and to make us his own. So both good iron and bad iron are worthy of love and respect and in need of God's grace. Christian, our leadership platforms are avenues for witness. Could, we, we were talking the other day, and Nicole said, I don't want God to call me to another place. And I was like, me either. Me either. Could God call Nicole or JD or Miguel or Kayla or Jamie to Southeast Asia or South America or to the exotic land of Vermont? Sure, he could. But for now, he's called you to where you are. He's called you to your home. He's called you to your workplace. He's called you to your teams and your relational network. And he wants you to be sharpened and to sharpen as iron sharpens iron. So one person sharpens another. It's bad iron who has been saved by Christ. I want to encourage you to love good iron and bad iron because that's how Jesus loves us. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. Lord, it's such an atypical series of messages because we're not just saying we need to choose to follow Christ. We're saying most of us are following Christ. How do we do that well? And specifically in this series, how do we do it well where we're called to lead? God, for the, the people that we're called to lead, some of, them are what, some of them are a blessing and a joy and a delight. They're allies, they're confidants, they're good authorities. Some of them are... Uh, painfully difficult, EGRs, sandpaper. But God, even those, both the good and the bad, will sharpen us if we let them. Lord, would you bring to our minds right now um, people in our life who are encouragers and life givers? And would you bring to our minds, uh, even right now, people who are sandpaper, who need to be sandpaper, or who are EGRs, or who, some who are even like emotional black holes who just suck the emotion out of life? And Lord, would you help us receive all of those people as a grace gift? And would you help us to see that they can sharpen us? And would you help us to be people of influence with them who live out the gospel in such a way that it's compelling and is a beautiful witness to them? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.